0: You're listening to season three of of Future Ecology.
1: Ecology. Hey,
0: Hey. here's me and my friend called the tree. We're actually like really old friends, we're like cousins. We share a lot of the same DNA. For some reason, we just grew in very, very different ways.
2: A gardener who cares for a tree may be said to give it attention. But their solicitations are as nothing to the attentiveness of the tree which each day waits patiently for the sun to appear and surrenders itself wholly to the elements
3: even the rocks will speak of this brief history i the nervous breakdown of minerals i who was addicted to my own hypocrisies
4: soils are a testimony that everything on earth is matter Made of matter that has been matter of something else. As we die, we return to the soil. We are matter-passing, shape-shifting forms through a finite earth. Soils embody the biogeochemical processes that made life on Earth as we know it. The ground that we walk upon is a living multispecies world, literally teeming with creatures.
5: What has happened with industrialization is perhaps more the illusion rather than the reality that the earth is hard surfaced, but modernity and the industry that sustains it has conspired to create this illusion that we live our lives on a kind of platform that is layered over the earth, a sort of crust as the earth beneath and we're on top and the ground then appears as an interface
6: between the two. Da Vinci said 500 years ago that we know more about the planets than we do about the soil beneath our feet. Unfortunately, that might
2: still be true.
7: In other words...
2: What on Earth is ground? Is ground. Is ground.
8: Welcome to a very special episode of Future Ecologies presented in collaboration with the Serpentine Galleries. My name is Mendel. And my name is Adam. And these are the voices of the Understory of the Understory, a collection of artworks, presentations, and conversations. Curated as part of the General Ecology Project at the Serpentine Galleries, this is the fourth edition of an annual celebration of multispecies
3: consciousness, The Shape of a Circle in the Mind of a Fish. The understory of the understory is everything that you might miss from a bird's eye view, the unseen and the underappreciated. It includes more than 30 reflections on topics ranging from the vast to the microscopic, but all generally rooted in the question of earth, soil, and territory.
8: You can experience the two-day symposium in its entirety, or any of these contributions individually, on the Serpentine Gallery's YouTube channel. You can find a link in the show notes of this episode. But
3: since you're here, we've sifted through the components of the understory, broken them down, and digested them into this audio compost. Naturally, there is no single throughline or narrative. Instead, you
8: can expect a blend of granular themes. We've ruminated
3: on these layers of raw material, added some sonic amendments, And now present to you this reconstituted, highly concentrated, if loosely aggregated, media. We are proud to serve as the decomposers of this symphony of voices. Its movements range from coevolution to condensation, from terraforming to termitomyces, and from death to dust, and back again. Okay, let's dig in.
9: Grief grinds slowly. It devours all the time it needs. The course of bereavement does not run smooth. It progresses in fits and starts, takes unforeseeable turns. If anyone had told me that mushrooms would be my lifeline. I would have rolled my eyes. What had
10: mushrooms to do with mourning? This is the realm of kingdom fungi. Without death there could be no life.
3: Yet at some point these words will dissolve.
11: My father proposed an experiment. We cut the top off a clear plastic bottle. Into the bottle we placed alternating layers of soil, sand, dead leaves, and finally it a handful of earthworms. Over the next days, I watched the worms wind their way between the layers. They mixed and stirred. Nothing stayed still. Sand crept into soil and leaves crept into sand. The hard edges of the layers dissolved into each other. The worms might be visible, my father explained, but there are many more creatures that behave like this that you can't see. Tiny worms and creatures smaller than tiny worms and creatures still smaller. They don't look like worms, but are able to mix and stir and dissolve one thing into another just like these worms can. Composers make pieces of music. These were decomposers who unmake pieces of life. Nothing could happen without them.
10: These fungi, their beauty and vitality are a stark contrast to the dead tissues on which they feed.
11: They're eating rock making soil, digesting pollutants, nourishing and killing plants, surviving in space, inducing visions, producing food, making medicines, manipulating animal behavior, and influencing the composition of the Earth's atmosphere. Fungi provide a key to understanding the planet on which we live and the ways that we think, feel, and behave. Yet they live their lives largely hidden from view, and over 90% of their species remain undocumented. The more we learn about fungi, the less makes sense without them.
5: Fungi don't behave as organisms are supposed to behave. They spill out, they create relationships. They're all over the place. There are several million species of fungi and, not surprisingly, an equally
10: vast diversity of sizes, shapes, colours and forms. With flowering plants, we know they don't just have flowers. They have the leaves and the roots and the shoots. And fungi have equivalent parts too. That's called the mycelium. Mushrooms are really the fruit bodies of the fungi. They're equivalent to the flowers or the fruits of flowering plants. The fruit bodies produce the spores, which are like the seeds of flowering plants. When a spore lands, if the conditions are right, a fine filament grows out. The fine filament is called a hypha. These hyphae grow from their tips. It branches higgledy-piggledy to start with. This is the main body of the fungus. These individual hyphae form a network called the mycelium. At the edges of this network, the hyphae are evenly spaced, searching optimally and efficiently for nutrients. They are microscopic, but together, en masse, we can see them.
11: Fungi are peculiar in a number of ways, but one of their peculiarities is that they have these distributed bodies and indeterminate patterns of growth. And so there's no specific place where they could be integrating what they perceive. They seem to be able to coordinate their bodies both a little bit everywhere at once and also nowhere in particular. Mushrooms
7: form an important part of ecosystem. They act like messengers between trees, insects, plants, and all other parts of the forest, for example. And they understand language of trees, understand language of insects, and then somehow manage to translate between the species. Therefore, more likely language of mushrooms will be very, very complicated.
10: Fungi feed by a process that is called external digestion. The hyphae secrete enzymes that break down big bits of food into small molecules, molecules that are small enough to be absorbed by those individual high-fulfillments.
6: We lose our heads, but not our appetites. In love, we eat each other up. Part of love's vocabulary is gustatorial. It consumes and devours. It swallows or else desires to be swallowed up.
12: Milloin olen, Quas mullään.
1: Where the broad-shouldered moon, stoic, was whole again as your image unbreaks upon the water.
0: Rotting into the ground and then just... I imagine all the tension, tightness, any of the pain just decomposing into the wood, rotting. Getting transmuted and transformed into uh, nutrient-rich soil and dirt. It's compost your pain.
9: No wonder people talk about a vacuum after someone dies. There are so many hours in the day that have to be filled when someone very close to us passes away. For me, these forays into the fungi kingdom became a way of spending this unwanted spare time. And as I became more familiar with certain forests, I also ventured to go out hunting on my own with only my mushroom basket and newly acquired knowledge for company. Visiting my favorite spots was rather like coming home. I knew exactly where to go.
11: Fungi are everywhere, but they're easy to miss. They're inside you and around you. They sustain you and all that you depend on.
9: Since I became bitten by the mushroom bug, I have discovered an invisible peril world right at my feet. A magical world, which I would once have walked straight past unwitting.
11: As you hear these words, fungi are changing the way that life happens, as they've done for more than a billion years.
9: Sometimes, when I find mushrooms, time seems to stand still. I experience both flow and zen. Gathering mushrooms is both a tactile and a sensory experience. My heart leapt the first time I found a delicious edible mushroom on my own. Find one mushroom and there's a good chance that you will find another nearby. The thrill of discovery is cumulative. One mushroom, one delight. Two mushrooms, double delight.
6: We eat each other, but in such a way that the meal is inexhaustible.
13: There's something about this, like, being the end of the line or being a part of a circle. We always think of, like, a human as a species that's not going to change, but obviously we're as in the middle of a process of co-evolution, evolution, transformation, or whatever. And we tend to think of the end of the contemporary time as always a kind of end of history moment. We tend to think of lines with us at a kind of end point as opposed to inserting oneself or being like a temporary part of something that is more of a cycle. So I wonder if it's not so much the kind of, either it's good life renewal or it's bad decay. You're sort of in the middle all the time.
7: In a recent talk, philosopher Ashil Mbembe noted that the key question that colonization raises is, who owns the earth? For whom and to whom does the earth belong? The key project of decolonization for Mbembe is to respond to that question with a resounding cry that the earth belongs to all of us. The earth is what we all hold and possess in common. We all define how the earth becomes livable. This is a powerful way of articulating decolonization, and I want to build on it by turning the statement, by insisting that we, we in our various configurations and compositions belong to the earth it is practices of belonging that define livability so we are of this earth perhaps one of its many lively qualities rather than one of its managers or owners we simultaneously and differentially are possessed by cultivated and composed by the various the multiple the understoried more-than-human workings of the Earth. more more-than-human workings of the Earth.
4: Soil generation, or pedogenesis, is a processual concept most intimately related to the breakdown of matter through weathering and action of microorganisms. In this sense, the dynamic liveliness of soil geological, biological and chemical processes features breakdown as an essentially collective form of agency.
9: Yes. And I wanted to put the cows in the center of the stage of making land, making earth terraforming. Making cows genetically, breeding them is a very specific way of terraforming that will have the power to either regenerate soils or will have the power to continue the destruction of soils and land depending on the relation between cows and handlers. When you design cows genetically, you're also designing a landscape.
6: There's even a myth, which I was interested in from the Muiti regions, and it goes something like, God first divided the sky and the earth and the land from the water and the four cardinal points from each other, and then made the umbilical cord linking sky and earth and then created termites, the first animal to increase the earth, and then other animals and eventually people followed. God charged termites with eating all that's on earth except the spirit and turning it into earth. Termites are the elders of all creatures. They furnish the essence of nature before angels, before everything. The termite is the first mason of masons. It's kind of the architect.
10: The higher termites and fungi have a mutualistic relationship as well. Below ground in the nests of the termites there is the fungus garden where they cultivate the fungus. They bring to the fungus food in the form of dead plant matter, leaves, wood etc. The termites don't have the enzymes to break down this dead material so it's of no direct nutritious value to them. But their partners, the fungi, do. They can break down the dead stuff and convert it into fungal material. Highly nutritious, and the termites
6: eat these. Together, these two organisms flourish. And people see that those termite mounds actually produce, in the vicinity of them, really lush, better crops. There's something that the termites are doing to render the place more fertile. In fact, people really struggle to get hold of a termite mound when you demarcate a field from your neighbour, and you sort of somehow put the line of demarcation across the mound.
7: I think of the vast spectrum of planting practices involving cultivars and cultivators as responses to the making and remaking of soil. Soil is a recursive relation always making while being remade. In other words, soil configures and composes its subjects and objects, cultivators and cultivars, while at the same time being configured and composed by them, by us, by the all possessed by Earth.
13: Symbiosis between organisms
6: raises the possibility of a larger meta-organism. One of the strangest occasions for myself was hearing someone say that we are like termites and I found that really perplexing. I wasn't quite sure as an anthropologist what on earth that meant and it took years really to puzzle it out in the sense that wherever termites build their mounds you tend to get vegetation very different to the vegetation around Certain trees will grow where otherwise only grasses would grow. And so, out of termite mounds, you get these extraordinarily diverse ecologies. And people say we're like termite mounds, uh, almost for that reason, because wherever you settle a village, You bring wood and burn the wood, and you uh, bring straw in for the thatch, and you bring your crops in, and from all the surrounding area, you kind of bring everything to the village, and everything that you bring renders the village fertile. Around every settlement in the Kisi region of Republic of Guinea, where I was working, every settlement has around it a sort of island of forest are just like termite mounds that all have their particular vegetation. So we have
14: to be thinking now of co-building and co-creation and how do you bring in everybody together to be able to create something. It's no longer just you know your own kind of iconic building that you might have built. I find that people have so much potential because if you are using materials that they are used to, then they have also ideas and thoughts and also the creative process immediately comes into force, especially women. And they start really identifying with the structure and they start you know, beautifying it in the way that they're the only ones who know because nobody else can do it as well. And so the concept that I had or whatever I might have designed becomes something quite different. It transforms into a thing of beauty suddenly, you know. And uh, I think what is very interesting about building with tradition and with these local materials like you know I only use clay and uh, earth and bamboo and lime. And suddenly, by making a Pakistan chula, for instance, which is nothing but an earthen platform with a well-designed smokeless stove, that that itself provides dignity to women. I mean they suddenly from sitting on the floor and you know inhaling all the smoke with this open fire stove that they normally have, They're now sitting on an elevated platform, which is really an earthen throne, if you like. And suddenly everything changes about them. They become much more confident and suddenly there's much more respect for them. So architecture is not just that we create something tangible or a form or something, but it can actually really influence the way that people around you start behaving towards you or the way
6: that you start behaving with others. Farmers in this region They say that the very best soils are the soils of old settlement sites. And what's going on here is that that people, through working the land and through uh, concentrating fertility, are almost switching the soils on. They're upgrading them. And the charcoal that, that comes from the ash of the fires that people are lighting every day to do the cooking and other materials get seeping into the soil making layer upon layer of darker earth that then becomes super fertile soils. So good soils are the things that are produced by people. The very same soils that ecologists from here are construing as natural and the baseline from which to understand degradation are in fact the very same soils, those that are historically produced by people, showing just how much people have created that soil. So what people have created is being used against them and in very disastrous ways, because we do need to understand how soils can be generated in actually quite relatively quick time. We've probably lost half the carbon out of the soil and people don't realize When we talk about carbon and global warming, most of the terrestrial carbon is in the soil, not in the vegetation above the soil, but actually in the soil. And what we need to do is to reverse that, to put more carbon back into the soil, which we're trying to do, and then we can start building it back. It doesn't take millennia to produce these thick, dark earth soils. It takes a decade or two.
4: Making the soil visible seeing the soil can actually be thought as an ecological anomaly. We can think here with soil advocates calling out on the plight of soils made bare, arguing for literally recovering soils.
6: And gradually begin to understand that the soil isn't just something that kind of is there naturally and that is gradually eroded away, which is a very British kind of way of understanding the soil. But the soil isn't like that. The soil is a sort of a matrix that is given life
4: by things. These are soils of biblical significance. The origins of these soil people are not any soil either, but clay and red dust. In Hebrew, Adama is the red clay
13: that made Adam. Everyone is from Adam, and Adam is from
15: dust. In fact, graphite has almost always been a part of us, as long as there has been an us to speak of at all. Graphite is one of about a dozen minerals found in the interstellar grains of the earliest meteorites we have encountered. The cosmic primordial soup, birthed in the Big Bang, was formed of three ingredients hydrogen, helium, and lithium. And it was only much later, in the belching and burping byproducts of an insatiable consumption of these elements so called nuclear fusion in stars, that carbon and oxygen would form taking mineral form in molecular clouds of diamonds, graphites, oxides, carbides, nitrates, and silicates. When working with graphite, you should really wear a mask and gloves, as in its generosity, it gets everywhere. It is inhaled, ingested, and absorbed. It becomes a part of you. And as one commenter on the DeviantArt message board says, you really don't want to get black lung just because you huffed a bunch of pencil
13: dust date, 2002. Forensic studies show dust particles made up of soil, skin, flesh, glass, cocaine, brick, concrete, cyanide. Speed, 1,800 meters per second. In a recent lecture, A.L. Wiseman described an anecdote of one of his colleagues in Palestine. His neighborhood was turning into dust. He was coughing and he was saying, I am breathing my house. He was literally breathing in his house, his street, his ground, his family. Clouds include everything pulverized by a bomb that a building once was. And when she inhaled clouds of perlite, felt them
6: curdle her blood, becoming thought. Floor is lava,
4: eyes are algae, ash is rock trying to become air. So are material and symbolic investments of nationalism and colonial powers that reduce them to territorial conceptions of land and exclusionary forms of belonging including blood and soil narratives in black holes a brief history of time
15: m norbisi philip gives us a number of re-articulated refigured cosmic definitions of the universe philip writes space-time the four-dimensional space whose points are events. You cannot talk about space as it relates to black people, to African people, without talking about movement or moving through space. And once you talk about moving through space as it relates to Africans, then you must confront the forces that prohibit or restrict that moving.
1: I was naturalized as a British citizen in 1991 because my sister Besma was born in London. My mother worked hard for this and she stayed. My father refused the passport and eventually left. Naturalised. Naturalised. What is that really? Like really? What is it? Were we unnatural in this place before that point? In this place. Natural. Desirable. Where does the body feel wanted?
13: Date, 2 billion years ago. Material composition, gold, AU, found in quartzite and pyrite ore, specific gravity of 19.3. Speed, Frederford crater impact, about 20 kilometers per second immediate impact, about a billion years of geological shift.
5: The very earth that had once offered nourishment and support for human life came to be recast as a repository of resources to be plundered. So archaeological excavation figured as a mere prelude to a program of extraction on an industrial scale that has ravaged the Earth.
13: A meteor strike to the Earth's crust drove gold to the Earth's surface in Joburg. In 1886, gold is discovered. The connection to deep time is brought to the surface. Black labour forces are brought from all over the country to mine the land. Deaths on the mines through silicosis, tuberculosis and other forms of lung disease are common. There is violence in breathing in parts of Joburg. There is a violence in breathing in parts of Joburg. That this space programme was
15: unfolding against the backdrop of Zambian independence is pertinent. As Namwali Serpell has written about beautifully, Colossal's work throughout his life was closely associated with an active struggle for the emancipation of black people in the region from British colonial control. Alongside the space programme, in seeking to make the break from colonialism, the newly independent Zambian government undertook a series of economic and social reforms that would radically restructure relations between people, property and the earth. Through the abolition of private property and the nationalization of the mines, the country's land and minerals were no longer matter for generating profit, but rather matter that had the means to enrich the lives and futures of the Zambian population. Towards the same ends, the concurrent Zambian space program required of black Zambians to craft a narrative in which black people were themselves no longer seen as resources, as minerals, and were not only free to flourish on earth, But could aspire to even greater heights too. That this group of Zambian astronauts never made it into orbit is neither here nor there. This was a project that was not solely concerned with leaving the Earth, nor was it preoccupied with a future emancipation. Arguably, in conceiving of and constructing the programme, the journey Colossal sought to undertake was already successful.
1: I've been giving it some thought, and it turns out I don't care where I'm native. Or where my body belongs sweat in my eye bitten by flies this is where i am right now it's fertile here and for better or worse this is where i'll thrive
16: i grew up in the sweltering heat of northwestern louisiana in the summers the air was so humid It mocked the distinction between liquid and gas. I would feel a deep identification with the phrase fish out of water, unable to breathe the air that threatened to become water. My siblings and I would pray for the walls of rain that would concentrate themselves and then rage across the landscape, dropping the temperature 20 degrees in their wake, but then leaving behind more steam as the blistering concrete streets boiled away their remainders. Now, no matter how hot the summers were, I preferred them to the northern winters we left behind. I was born in Buffalo, New York in the frigid February. We'd often go back there to visit our family and especially our grandparents and great aunts and uncles. Even in August, it was too cold in Buffalo for me to consider cannonballing into my cousin's pool. My father's parents, uncles, and aunts didn't think it was cold enough. They'd tell increasingly outlandish stories of life on the glaciers, just above our ancestral village in Trentino. They made it seem like the best humans were defined by the capacity to withstand ice i see water i see winds ice capped alps they clearly thought their mountains their cascades their rivers and valleys made them special and that their village and its way of life was better than all others begging the question of course why will we in america in the u.s where we actually were my father would pull out our bel-air blue station wagon onto the side of mountain bridges when we did our annual camping trips to the u.s west he'd pull my brothers out of the car and scramble down the mountainside into the streams below they would all come back my brothers slightly blue and shaking what is he doing to you he's making us plunge into the icy waters because he wants us to be mountain men he thinks withstanding ice water makes you strong. Little surprise that when I arrived in Darwin, Australia in the sweltering September, 1984, I found myself environmentally at home. Here, in addition to the water saturated air and inland swamps were saltwater seas and a different pattern of fish, of reptiles, of amphibians, birds, snakes, and other animals that roamed through these regions. There were no mountains anywhere and definitely no ice except what came out of one kind of machine and was conserved in another. Storms also came here bigger and lasting much longer than I had known in Shreveport. Monsoons would pour for months on end until everything was in a state of mold and rot clothes, skins, buildings, didn't matter. Those with money could huddle inside with other machines that would cool their air. For those too poor to have these machines, we just sweltered and rotted. But I didn't merely encounter a new kind of water. As I came to know the indigenous men and women who lived at Belyoon across the Darwin Harbor, I slowly came to refashion the glacial identity that I had carried around with me in relation to the southern swamp.
3: In the forest, the river mud hasn't been dry for years.
16: My Belle friends map human differences onto the types of water that define lands. For them, there are saltwater people, freshwater people, and desert people each with their own distinct sweat, ceremonial ways, ecological practices, forms of marriage and alliance. Most indigenous Bellune folks are saltwater people, as are the members of the Karabing Film Collective.
9: Like we got a group, sort of we're we're got, mm-hmm. we got their own place, and own story, like we're our country. We got travel map, they got their own country, got Bujut Ron language, wrong story. We got Bujut map, they got their own story. Myanmar got their yeah, like the own story and Pablo. Many young map but with their own story of Kugul Map. But we still one map. Even though we all a different, different language and different different land, but we all connected to the one.
12: We're we not different, we're the...
16: all one map.
12: And that makes us yeah. current.
16: Karubing acknowledged that there are many parts of existence, the more-than-human world, who are creating their own patterns of existence in relation to Karubing, but are not defining those patterns of existence for Karubing or necessarily even for the human world. For humans to stay in the pattern they are, they must allow others, human and otherwise, to make worlds for their own reason, toward their own ends, in their own designs.
5: You go to the beach and you're watching the waves rolling in and you say, oh, a wave, you know, it's a short-term thing. It's it's ephemeral, that wave, a few seconds and it's broken and it's gone, that's the end of it, no more wave. You think, waves, short-term. But then you think, but these waves have been coming in and breaking on this shore for millions of years. Uh, for as long as you know anybody cares, long longer than any humans around. So that actually, to attune your consciousness to the waves is absolutely not to be caught in that present moment. It's to see that in that present moment is a whole eternity.
12: Aika ja joki ovat saman näköisiä.
6: As certain populations of tree species become less resilient to a changing climate, many scientists and forest managers are debating the actions that could be taken to help conserve forested communities. Assisted migration or the intentional movement of organisms to places that would increase the probability of their future persistence has become a hot topic of debate. The ethics of these actions prompts us to ask ourselves if humans should even intervene Should we aim to preserve our lands and manage to keep them the same or accept change and let things go? Perhaps it is the end of the wild and striving to maintain our forests to how they looked pre-colonialism is untenable. You know, there
17: are many versions of this story. In all of these ocean-going cultures of the Pacific, of which, you know, there's Melanesia, Micronesia, Polynesia, there are so many islands and so many chapters of this gradual diaspora out into the islands and then people would settle on an island and they'd stay for many generations and then something would occur, overpopulation or a famine or a fight or a a vision. There's another place. And they have to make a choice because they're always going to a new world they haven't seen before haven't heard from anybody from that new world. Uninhabited islands across the Pacific. And so we have to make a choice. When we're going to this new world, what if none of the plants we know live in that world? What if our key food plants aren't there? What if our key medicine plants, what if the plant we make our clothing from, what if the plant that we use for glue, the plant that is our main prayer plant, what if they're not there? So how do we choose? We have to fit 50 people on our outrigger. And we don't know if we'll be at sea for weeks or months. We have to feed those 50 people. So we have to take the food. But we also have to take plant starts to plant in this new world because we have no idea what's there. And so every time these migrations happened, untold times, and we had, we don't have historical records of any but the very latter stages like when Hawaii was settled in the last... 1500 years and that kind of thing. But at every stage, people made a selection of their plants and generally how it's thought of is that they chose 20 to 24 species and those were the species they thought they couldn't live without. And then they'd keep those alive till they got to the next place. These days in Hawaii, the canoe plants are often referred to because they know what they brought. In the two migrations from two different island groups that came to Hawaii, the Marquesas and and Tahiti, they know the plants that actually came on the boats. And that category, canoe plant, then seems so instructive to me because those are the plants that they knew they would need and their descendants would need. But in a way, they're also their key categories that can't be lived without. It's like a language of plants that make our life possible.
2: Plants by far exceed animals and human beings in their attentiveness to what is going on around them. And with regard to the levels of light, heat, moisture, movement, vibration, they are constantly in touch with the elements. Sphagnum palustra, blunt-leaved bog moss. What scientific study of plants reveals is that there is here a mode of life expertly aware of its environment and moreover communicating this expertise and awareness to other organisms through chemical reactions and minute movements in the subsoil. Like every sensitive thing on the planet, plants are aware. Their life differs from ours only by degree. At the same time, a plant's awareness seems quite different from our own. Humans tend to pay attention to nature when the elements do not cooperate with us, upsetting our plans. Plants, by contrast, are never unaware of what happens. Their mode of attention is one of radical openness, the paradisiacal ability to attend to oneself and to the others in absolute openness.
1: The smell of the air is subtle, various and sweet, the ground not solid but springy, a collaboration of living things and the elaborate death of leaves and trees. There was no seeing everything at once. No certainty. As it should be, there is nothing pure in this place.
0: Pallustra is a marsh, but if you're classed by where you come from, you're the edge that meets the soften. You're the coughing of blossom giving way to wood. Woven leaves, no sleeves, a shallow pink is an afterthought. Peach is the leaf you brought, your fleshy soft and outer, your hard and nutless butter. Nothing in that isn't soft, nothing out that isn't soft. Nothing in that isn't soft, nothing out that isn't soft.
9: On a ramble through the fungi kingdom, the senses have to be switched on, the mind tuned in. I sense
2: something new, therefore, I am a new person. The closest analogy in human experience would be the awareness our skin has of the environment, an awareness we cannot choose not to have, a fundamental yet indefinable alertness.
7: That's because if you talk about speed of fungal computing, then bits of the spike is about 20 minutes. Basically, fungal computes very, very slow because mushrooms have nowhere to rush. They, they're kind of immortal, we can say. And when they're immortal, you can compute very slow. We humans, Uh, have this propensity, this vice, to reduce behaviors and modes of existence that are so different to us, to something that we can understand and therefore reducing them to our own scale and logic. But at the same time, it's a propensity that is embedded very often in the desire to understand and the desire to, to, to comprehend in a way that we have to reduce it in order to, for us to understand what does it mean to be a mushroom, or do, what does it mean to be a mycelium network.
11: It's a real pickle, and it's it's a, it's a tension that I don't think is going to go anywhere anytime soon, but I think it's important to spend time in this tension, to feel it out, to, to be tugged this way and that. The basic pickle is when we anthropomorphize other organisms, non-human organisms, we try to understand them using human terms, human concepts, and in doing so, we make it difficult to understand them on their own terms. So there are a few problems with this. Uh, One is that when we try to avoid anthropomorphism, um, studiously, I was trained in the the natural sciences, and, and there are all sorts of ways that we're warned against using human terms to understand other organisms. Then too often, I think, we end up using quite mechanistic language to understand them. We, we frame non-human organisms somehow as uh, automata, as pre-programmed robots responding automatically to stimuli from their environment. And this I think is a, is a kind of cryptic anthropomorphism because in this mechanistic language, we, we're making out these organisms to be machines, but humans are the only organisms to build machines. So I think we smuggle anthropomorphism in through our mechanism uh, and so get in a pickle that way. But I think at the root of our problem, with this is what we choose to call human concepts in the first place. If you say another organism has feelings and then that's being anthropomorphic, then you're suggesting that humans are the only organisms to have feelings. That may well be what you think. And if you do think that, then that would be anthropomorphic. But it also may very well be the case that in your understanding, your opinion, your intuition, these organisms also have feelings. And if you say they have feelings, then then you're referring simply to the fact that they're having feelings in their own way. So what we do there is we deepen and expand the concept of feeling to encompass all the different kinds of feeling that might exist in the living world. I think our allergy to anthropomorphism speaks too often of a species narcissism and exceptionism that prevents us from attributing these qualities, these abilities to non-humans. Natasha Myers writes hilariously about Charles Darwin when he is figuring the lives and behaviors of orchids and orchid flowers and she discusses the way that Darwin talks about orchid flowers in terms of a man's body. He said, no, this flower is a bit like a man bent over with his arm around the side and his hand coming up to meet the other hand and then you end up with this picture in your mind of Darwin standing there balancing on one leg, contorting his body into the shape of an orchid flower. And then the question is, is he practicing phytomorphism? phytomorphism? Is he being uh, vegetalized by the flower? Is he trying to understand the flower on the flower's terms? Or is he you being anthropomorphic? Is he using the terms of the human body to understand that of the flower's body? And, and you end up in this shifting space between the two. And then he recognized that, that we are also influenced by the world around us.
13: I absolutely love that you say this, because I think one of the things that has emerged through this series that we feel very strongly is the fact that actually anti-anthropomorphism is entirely anthropocentric.
2: Naturally, we anthropomorphize, but since the environment is actually inside human bodies and minds, speaking humanly about the non-human is scientifically accurate as well as accurately ethical.
12: On autua, jos ajattelemme itseämme erilliseksi, itsenäiseksi. Minusta me olemme osa kokonaisuutta. Olemme kokonaisuuden ilmentymiä. Olemme energiaa energias, joka virtaa meissä, meidän kauttamme. Se jää jälkeemmekin johonkin toiseen muotoon. On niin Juuri luulin lumikiteen käsini, se suli.
5: Our modern sensibilities are profoundly conditioned by the idea that everything is formed of layers. That the ground, trees, buildings, books, and even human minds are built up layer upon layer, with each layer already marked up with its own striations. The past then is visible only by way of the translucence of the present. We have to be able to see through the present to see the past. But the ground as a surface teaches us otherwise. It tells us that with the passage of time, material is not added, but worn away through erosion. Our oldest memories, then, are not the deepest.
0: Your soul is fertile, just like soil. And your dreams can be composted, and they will flourish into new life. Breathing deeply into this unconscious knowing that your body has to become soil. Once your soul departs, You are earth heart. The boundaries betwixt you and the soil are porous. Let their wisdom speak through you now. Feel the energy of the microbes, the nutrients and minerals. Take root through your skin, into your system. We have always been like this. Some of us just forgot.
3: The story of the understory of the understory. Featuring the voices of Andrew Adamatsky,
8: Sean Cho A, Elizabeth Jane Burnett. Lynn Boddy, Marisol De La Cadena, James Fairhead, Adham Faramawi, Elaine Gann, Kathleen Harrison, Tim Ingold, Aisha Tan Jones, Asim Khan, Simone Kotra, Daisy Lafarge, Yasmin Lari, Cecilia Lewis, Dundee Lowenson, Alex McBratney, Hans Ulrich Obrist, Angelica Patterson, Lucia Pietro Justi, Elizabeth Povanelli, Maria Puig della Bellacasa, Filippa Ramos, Asad Raza, Merlin Sheldrake, Ula Valcheapo, Sumaya Valley, Long Lit Woon,
3: and J.G. Ying. Music by Kat Can Do, Scott Gailey, Hot Spring, Yu Su, Baron House, Kanawashtli. You're me. Hidden sky. Green plant. Yaya bones. And sunfish. Moon light. Editing and mixing by Mendel Skolsky. Special thanks to Costas Stasinopoulos, Holly Shuttleworth, Suzanne Husky, and of course the Serpentine Galleries. Future Ecologies is an independent podcast produced by Adam Huggins and Mendel Skolsky. Find more at futureecologies.net. This podcast is made possible with the support of our amazing patrons. Join our community at patreon.com slash futureecologies.
8: If we've left you hungry for more details on the science of soil and all of its diverse cohabitants, check out the podcast Life in the Soil produced by Anja Krieger and Matthias Rielek. To hear the rest of the conversations that were part of this episode, follow the link in the show notes to the serpentine galleries youtube playlist okay that's it thanks for listening